Father in heaven, we thank you for the great opportunity to turn into your word and glean truths, Lord, even as we work our way through the Pentateuch, Lord, we find such great biblical theology, truth uh, that was certainly evident at that time, but even has a greater fulfillment through Christ and the new covenant. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can study this together, be encouraged, be challenged, um, know our Bibles better, Lord. That's such a good thing for us. And we pray that tonight would be the same. We'd go out of here more like you than we were when we came in. We thank you for the children, the youth, others who are down the hall, caring for them, teaching them, little ones who are learning about the person Jesus Christ in their Bibles. We pray that they would have great joy. Many of them are learning to sing those truths, Lord. We ask that you bless that ministry. Be with our youth, Lord, our junior hires and our high school, Lord. We, we need um, more young people who grow up and follow you, uh, who will be the next godly parents, godly church leaders and members, Lord. And we pray that you would work mightily in our youth tonight. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 2 and 3 is our goal tonight. Um, again, the first uh, section of Numbers is a lot of numbers. Uh, but there are great things. We talked about this last week, that there is, uh, there's wonderful narratives we can't wait to get to. Some of you can't wait for me to get to chapter 5 and figure out how you mix the dust of the tabernacle with some water and figure out who committed adultery. Um, <laughs> I know you can't wait for me to preach that. I can't wait to figure out what that means. Um, but right now we're in the numbers of things. God is counting his people. He's numbering them and he has plans for that. I think what came out of this study to me was the organization of our God. Even those who don't per se believe in the God of the Bible, a lot of them believe that there is some kind of higher power. There's a designer out there because there's no way that evolution can be true because it just can't happen. It's just... Uh, everything is so designed and ordered in our creation. But when we study the order and creation of God, we study the organizational aspect of God, how he has organized everything from creation to our salvation to end times, we become worshipers of him. Isn't hard to read Genesis 1, right? There was night and there was day. <laughs> and he does it again and again. And there's organization and he asks to, he creates light and plants and everything's in an order so that it'll flourish on this world. God is a credible God of organization and order. And we really see that in this passage. And, and what you'll see is he's structuring these tribes um, all around the tabernacle, all with the aspect of worship. He wants them to be close to him. He doesn't want them to be scattered like they have been in the past. And so tonight we'll work our way through chapter 2 and 3. As is my custom, I won't read almost every, probably every verse in this uh, in order to get through these two chapters. But, but we'll, we'll, I'll give you the verses and then I'll give you an overview of what those verses are teaching. But let's sit down in chapter 2 for just a moment and look at a few points here. Israel was organized by its tribes with God in the center. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's households, and they shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. Well, Israel's now been out of Egypt for 13 months. They have made their way to Mount Sinai. They most likely traveled in family groups, but probably disorganized. There was not probably much structure. We kind of see that at the Red Sea when it splits. They, you know, they just don't know what to do a lot of times. They're, and they have to be commanded, go, go, come on, go. There's not a tremendous amount of structure in them yet. They've been slaves. They've been told what to do, where to go, what to say, what to, where to be, right? And so now God is preparing them to enter the promised land. And he gives them the next step of organization to do that. Anything we study in the scriptures about God and his plans from Genesis 1 forward, we just see his orderly plan that he has for his children. From creation that we've mentioned, but think about leadership. God, God has clearly laid out leadership, not only just in the Old Testament with Moses and, and leaders of the tribes and so forth, and, uh, but in the New Testament with elders and deacons and 
lay people and serving the Lord, all of that's been laid out. He gives his children structure because we need it. He gives a structure for marriage, which the world is trying to undo, aren't they? God knows the orderly structure that mankind needs through the relationship between a man and a woman and children and all of that is his design and he knows we need it. It's for our good. So God brings structure and organization into our life for our good. As we see in this chapter, though, God will tell Moses how he wants the nation to camp and how they're to be laid out. And not only will that camp um, have a, a certain formation to it where, when they're camped, but that's how they're going to travel. They're going to travel in this formation with the tabernacle right in the center of them, the presence of God in the center of them. Now, there's a, 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 I'm going to look forward just a little bit. Go to chapter 24. And the old prophet Balaam, who was not the best guy in the world, um, we'll see more of him when we get to this passage, once he gets his mind around who he's dealing with, there's a whole change of his view of what God is doing. And there's a, there's a beautiful structure, and I'm going to show you a slide here in just a minute, but I want to read you a, a passage first in Numbers 24 to show you the symmetry of what God was doing with this nation. We come to Balaam in chapter 24. He's seen the light now. And when Balaam saw that he pleased the Lord, it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. Remember, he was trying to curse him, but every time he did that, they got blessed. He did not go as other times to seek omens, but he set his face towards the wilderness. Well, that's where the nation was. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camp tribe by tribe. Look at this. And the spirit of God came upon him. He took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. His eyes were closed before. The oracle of him who hears the word of God. He didn't hear the word of God before. He heard the word of himself or demonic stuff probably. Who, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. Now look what he says. How fair are your tents, O Jacob. Your dwellings, O Israel. Like a valley that stretches out like gardens beside the river. Like aloes planted by the Lord like cedars beside the waters. Um, Josh and Troy found me some great slides. Um, Want to put that first one up there? This is an old drawing from years ago, but maybe this is what Balaam saw. Maybe he saw just the organization of a beautiful tribes all centered around the tabernacle where the presence of God would be dwelling. The priest. All on the corners, we'll look at that. He saw the symmetry of God's design, the order that God had made for this nation to conduct themselves. And this is what come out of them. He saw, oh, how fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling, O Israel. This wasn't a, a misshuffled group anymore. This wasn't a group that was stumbling its way out of Egypt after all of the problems that they would have had physically just from slavery. This is an organized group 13 months later. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by that young shepherd boy in 1947, not only did they conform the accuracy of the Old Testament, but in them were also um, writings that each of these tribes had standards or what maybe we would call banners at some time. And it, it was just further proof that there was organization to each one of these groups, this newly organized nation in a sense. Though they had been the nation of Israel in captivity, they're now distinguishable. They're not like the rest of the tribes of the world. They're, they're very individual tribes that have come together as one, all surrounding the God of Israel. Now, notice in this first couple of verses that it says... They shall camp around the tent of meetings at a distance. Well, next slide there, Troy, if you can. This is the way they're going to set up. And I'm going to walk my way through this here in just a moment. This was the east. Um, this was the direction that they were to be set up. This would have been the entrance to the courtyard. This would have been the entrance to the holy place. This is how they set up all the time with Judah, Dan, Ephraim, and Reuben always being the key closest to the tabernacle um, set up, and then the priests would be set up on these, in these sides here. Um, this is the way God wanted them set up, very structured, very organized. And as God, you could leave that up for a little bit, 
if you want, Troy. As God organized these tribes through his mediator, Moses, it's clear that he structured the temple to be the centerpiece. That's, that's where God resides now, with a temple not made with hands. This is where Jesus went into the heavens, not, not of something of this creation. He goes into the presence of us, presence of the Lord, and there he has brought us into that presence through him, through our union with him. And so these tribes are arranged themselves in these squares to the east, to the south, to the west, to the north, and all in relationship to the presence of God, the tabernacle. And since the tabernacle represented the presence of God, this meant that God wanted them close to him. I like that. He does not want his people far from him. He wants them there. You see this throughout the scriptures. Um, Until they rebelled, the Lord was always in their midst. Even when Jesus is on the earth, we find passage after passage that you find Jesus and he's surrounded by a crowd of people. Often we see the writers of the gospel accounts say that Jesus called the disciples to himself. He was in the center of them, teaching them. And by the time you get all the way to Revelation 4, 5, and 7, over and over it mentions that the throne of God is in the center of the redeemed. He's the center of all the redeemed. We'll look at a passage here in a moment on that. So as you get to the book of Numbers, here we are in this kind of early foreshadowing of God's desire to be the centerpiece of his people. Is he the centerpiece of your life? Is it the centerpiece of Riverbend? Is he the centerpiece? This is who he is. This is and so we see this beautiful illustration in Old Testament uh, teaching and instruction, but it all points to our own hearts, doesn't it? Now, these formation of armies, that's what the Bible calls them in the, in the last chapter, was the formation of these armies. Um, this was also adopted later on. We find all the way into the 13th century that Ramses II copied this. They think he copied it right from here. He made his royal tent in the middle, and then he put squares of his armies around him, and he moved through his, his wars and his battles and throughout the desert that same way. And at this time, Israel king, look, he was just God. It was God. There was no other king. God was their king. And so he was on his throne, in a sense, in the Shekinah glory, right in the middle of his armies. That's where he was. But notice in verse 2 that it's also showing the importance of each of the individuals in the context of their families and the tribal groups, right? I, I think this is important. As we study this, you begin to realize that each person was to know exactly where they were to be in this group. You, if you were of Reuben, you didn't travel over to Benjamin. You, not that you didn't visit, but that's not what you stayed. You knew where your role was. You knew where you were to be. You knew who your leaders were, and that's where you were to go. And each individual person had a position within the camp. Each person came underneath a standard, came underneath a banner according to his father's house, and they were to encircle the presence of God, the tabernacle. But notice they were to be at a distance, it says there. They were to stay at a distance as you look back at chapter 2. They were to camp around the tent of meetings, but they were to remain at a distance, the Bible says at the end of verse 2 there. Well, it's a clear reminder, God's holy. God's holy. And he is set apart. And what, one of the things that just must grab us, that this distance was not only a, a, a caution, but there was a reverence to God uh, that he was worthy of worship. But that gap is going to close, isn't it, with Jesus, isn't it? There, there's this great forward looking throughout the Old Testament of when that gap would be closed, when no longer we would need priests and sacrifices and the blood of another lamb to bring us into the presence of God or to have a relationship through him or be reconciled. There was one who was going to close the gap with God's people. And he would be the final lamb and the perfect mediator to bring us into his presence. And his name is Jesus. Because he is the, the, the way, the truth, the life. And no one can get to the Father except through him. Well, look at verses 3 through 9. Now those who camp on the east side towards the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies and the leader of the, uh, of the sons of Judah, Nation, the son of Abinadad, and his armies, even their numbers of men 
74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar and the leader of the sons of Issachar and so forth. He goes on and works through Issachar and Zebulun as we saw last week with these different numbers. Verse 9, the total of the numbers of men of the camp of Judah were 186,400 by the armies and they shall set out first. Now, notice that they're to camp eastward. This first group um, which we get into Judah, which would be, this would be east over here. Judah is the, actually this should be actually lined up. Judah should be here and Issachar and Zebulun out here. Zebulun on the outside, Issachar on the inside uh, would be there. But, but notice that these men are counted and they are facing the east. So they would always set up the tabernacle, this direction being east, the gate to the gate to the courtyard there and the door to the holy, most holy, the, the holy place there. And at that, this side was Judah. Judah was always on that eastern side. Most people in the western world, we kind of think north, don't we? Um, that's just kind of the way we are. Which way is north? Well, north's that way, east over there, west, south. And we, and we, we think that way, but not in the ancient world. Life, life was positioned around the sun, Right? was positioned around the east. And for Israel, the east was so significant in their thought. They, they knew who created the sun. They knew the rising of the sun was a source of, of uh, strength and what, one, uh, the great blessing of God to grow things and to give them life in so many ways. And so they often equated the sun with the glory of the Lord. The Great psalmist Asap wrote in Psalm 84:11, said, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. This is the way they thought. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk upright. They, they saw the sun and it would cause them to think of God and his ability to provide for them. So as this nation would set up, remember they're still at Mount Sinai, they're getting ready to head to the border for the first time. They're not going to make it in. We know that story. We'll get to that more. But they're set and they're ready to go. They have the ocean at their back. They have the sun in their face. And God is arranging the tribes around his tabernacle. But also notice that Judah in these verses here that I just lightly read over, that Judah is mentioned first. He's in front. Judah is near the door, the entrance. Judah was referred to by Jacob as the lion, right? I think a very fitting term that should lead the way, let alone carry the seed of Christ. As John looks at the throne and he sees a lamb that was slain as he focuses in deeper, behold, there's a lion, <laughs> right? And so here the seed of Christ is out front as they travel. He's there at the door and the gate to the tabernacle. He's the way into the presence of the Father. Isn't that interesting that Judah would be set there? Think about this army, Judah. is being led by Nashon, the grandfather of Joshua. He's the man. He's a man that loved God and was given the authority over this group. He goes on to be a part of the raising of a grandson that, passed, that the mantle is passed to. Dead Sea Scrolls, again, were showing evidences that there were signs or banners that were linked to, linked to these uh, tribes of Israel. We, we don't have a ton of scriptural references, but there's traditions in these, some of these Dead Sea Scrolls that show us that the tribes made up banners, colors, maybe that were um, equated to the stones on the breast of the high priest. And uh, some I read said some would be a certain color and like Judah would have a, maybe a lion on this banner. And, and, and all of the Judah tribe would line under, up, up under that banner. Reuben would have a figure of a man on it. Ephraim would possibly have a figure of an ox on it. Dan would possibly have a figure of an eagle on it. Those were the leaders. These were the tribal leaders of three different tribes in that square circled around the tabernacle. There's some really interesting things to chase down with this if you've got the time. You can't help but see these same lion, man, ox, and eagle in Ezekiel 1. You also see them in Revelations 4. We'll take a minute and look at that just in a minute. These traditions have, have been 
they do have a share of difficulties to prove all of them. You can't uh, line them all up because there's just not in the scriptures these signs that maybe were on banners of some sort. But Genesis 49, when you go back and study that, I went back and read that real quickly and listened to Jacob bless each one of his sons. Many of these, these characters were in that blessing. But it makes sense that there's something there, right? There was something there that they recognized, something marked where Judah was going to set up as they stopped on the way to the promised land or they wandered around for 38 years in the in the desert, there was a time where somebody had to stick up something in the ground and said, all right, Judah, we meet here. Tabernacle gets set here. And everything began to form around that. So it makes sense that those things may have happened. And without God's organization, the nation would have just been disorganized. They would have just wandered together and not been ready to fight, not been ready to obey what God had. There's a pattern here, isn't there? Look at verse 9 again with me. I'm going to point something out here. The total number of the men in the camp was 186,400 by the armies. And they set out first. Notice that the number of this forward group of these three tribes that would be under the banner of Judah here, they numbered 186,000. This is just one square, right? And 400 men all over the age of 20, this was one army that set up on the east side of the tabernacle. Notice that little phrase that says, they set out first. And can you imagine the organization that it takes? I mean, there's 186,000 men over 20. That's not counting women and children. Remember, we said conservatively, if they had 24 or 5% were children, we're up to two and a half million easy. To get this group moving together, all organized together, this is an amazing machine um, and really turning into a, a fighting machine that God was divinely organized and was to set out. And so as they lead out east with a tabernacle behind them, Judah and Issachar and Zebulun would be that lead group that would go. Just briefly scan over verses 10 through 16 with me because you find the next arrangement. This is the southern side, and maybe for you Chicago people, the south siders. Um, I don't know if this was a rough group or not, <laughs> but this is where they got set. And this group was led by Reuben. And it was a figure of a man, many people think, was on the banner there. And, and they, they were closest to the tabernacle. And the two other tribes that were with them were Simeon and Gad, as you can see up on the screen. But notice verse 16. The total of the number of men of the camp of Reuben was 151,450 by their armies. And they set out second. So now another 150,000 just men, now alone the women, the children, and all of that, all now moving in unison with the tabernacle behind them look at verse 17 this is an interesting verse that gets dropped in here these then are the sons of levi by the oh i dropped into the wrong verse wrong then the tent of the meeting set out okay so those two tribes are out in front of them set out with the tri with the tri, camp of levi's in the midst of the camps just as they camp so they set out every man in his place by their standard now i want to go to uh, another slide here and I want you to notice that the priestly tribe of Levi was in the middle of the camp. And they actually are closest to the tabernacle and surrounded by the other tribes. You'll see that there was God split really what we believe is three groups. Koath and Moses and Aaron are really out of the same family line. But Moses and Aaron um, were God's mediators. Aaron was head over the priest. Uh, Moses was a mediator, and they set these up. So inside of Moses would have, just outside of Moses, inside of Judah, would have been Moses and the priesthood right here. Same with uh, Merari. They would have had Dan right here, and Asher and Naphtali out here. Over here, you would have Gershon, the Levite tribe of, uh, Levite family named Gershon. They would have been next to the tabernacle here. Inside them, next to them, would have been Ephraim right here with Manasseh in the middle and one of the smaller tribes, Benjamin, on the outside. And then when you got to Koath, you would have Reuben. Reuben would have been the inside next to the priest here with Simeon and Gad 
on the outside as they moved along. And this is the priestly tribe of the Levite. And they're in the middle of the camp. They're closest to the tabernacle. And they're surrounded by all of these tribes. And you can see the division of the Levites. And especially Moses' position here. We'll look at that in chapter 3. Now look at verses three, uh, 18 through 24. Just glide over that. Here we come to Ephraim. I just want to mention this quickly because we see it on the slide here. They, was, they were to be first, right? Ephraim was closest to the tabernacles we just saw on the west side. Manasseh in the middle between Benjamin um, and Ephraim there. The ox was the banner possibly that they had that they set up to know where everybody would start to put their tents in orderly fashion. And this group totaled 108 1,100. Uh, Look at verses 25 through 31. This would have been the north side of the tabernacle. This was represented by the lead tribe, Dan. And they were accompanied by Asher and Naphtali. And the banner was possibly an eagle here that they flew to know where to set up. This group had 157,600 available soldiers. Now look at verses 32 through 34 at the end of this chapter. These are the numbers of the men of the sons of Israel by their father's household. The total of the number of men of the camps by their armies was 603,550. We saw that total uh, last week in, in chapter 1. The Levites, however, were not numbered among the sons of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards... And so they set out, every one by his family, according to his father's household, such organization that was there. And these verses really represent a summary of the total of these available soldiers, over 600,000 men who were 13 months ago slaves. Now they represent God's fighting force, and that's not even including the Levitical troop. Levitical tribe. Notice in verse 34, though, that each tribal group was placed in a square. There was organization there. This, this organization was in place. They broke camp. They marched in the same order. They arranged themselves around the tabernacle. And their march is beginning at Sinai as these tribes at this point are faithfully obeying the mediator Moses here. It's quite a, it's quite a, a, a a site. I don't know my, how much square land that would have had to take up. You know, we have 113 acres here at Riverbend. Um, I'm not sure it would hold them all. It, it might have been bigger than that when it was all set up. Um, you, you're talking, in, you know, over a, you know half a million people, all camping and doing everything you have to do when you camp. It's quite, a, it's quite a daunting thing to think about how organized God made these newly free slaves. And think about that. Now they're an orderly camp. They're assembled according to God's plan. They got the tabernacle in the middle. What an amazing accomplishment for so many people to do. Slaves, unorganized, ratty clothes, doubtlessly, um, well, not well supplied, and here they are. It's just amazing. So we were at lunch the other day talking about how people can be organized if they really do. You go to Chick-fil-A, and you watch those young people, how nice they are, and how well they perform, and then you can go to another local drive through that I won't mention, and you go, you can't even get the order across. But here they're doing it for God. God says, I want you to count them and organize, and then that's what happened. And so the text speaks well of God's organization that he gives to Moses. It speaks mo well of Moses, a great leader, and these 12 leaders within the tribes to gather this great group of people. And they look like a nation now, right? 13 months ago, they're this tattered group, eating a lamb, painting blood on the doorpost, and walking out of Egypt by the power of God, but not very organized. And here they are, ready to obey God, at least at the outset. Notice at the, uh, at the close of chapter 2 here, and I think this must be noted, that, that God really shows some great detail, doesn't he? he? He doesn't leave anything undone. They are to stay in these groups. And, and, and it just I think what hit me is he's so creative and... So organized in creation, and yet he's so attacked, right? Oh, he couldn't create the world in six days. 
Oh, that can't be. A day can't be a day. There, you know? so it, and yet he takes this ragtag group. <laughs> and in a month, we know in a month they were ready to go. This is the power of God to even direct the physical aspects of our life. And what could have been a very chaotic group, now through the loving Father's guide and direction, there's organization there. And I think this marks the plan of God of salvation. It was organized from the beginning. God had a way that he laid down that he was going to rescue us. It's his plan. And he fulfills it perfectly down to the minutest de- uh, detail to rescue us. And he, and he continues to plan, right? He, he plans out our lives. He, he's transforming us into the work, uh, through a work in our lives, a sanctifying work to make us be image bearers of his son, right? To, to, to be brought more into the image of his son. And he, he accomplishes this just through his divine wisdom. He is a wise God. And the more I thought about this, the more I looked at these graphs and looked at these texts, I thought, Lord, we have a hard time getting the church to get in line at times. The Corinth church has to be reprimanded to get in line to prophesy because they can't even get in line. They're pushing each other. They want to get their gift out. They want to do all those things. And here's two million people moving as one. I, I just marveled at that. I even thought about the placement of the tribes, the way he did things. Ephraim was the third smallest, and yet they're closest to the tabernacle. Benjamin, uh, second smallest tribe, and they're on the perimeter where all the danger was, where all the tax would come. And so God always works with an order and a design that it doesn't always make sense to us how he does things sometimes. But his word doesn't return void and his plans will never fail. So we've got to believe that. And you look at this and you go, Scott, how much, how can you get all that out of there? Okay, let's see how long it takes you to get this group, a couple hundred people, all organized. <laughs> we'll go out in the parking lot and somebody take over. We probably couldn't get out the door. It took us a while, right? So it's just, it, it it's amazes me how God sets in order things that need to be done. And, and we need to obey him, right? In fact, when we resist God's plan organization for our life, it exposes just a man-centered selfishness, right? I think when you're in slavery, you don't need a lot of organization. You do what you're told, go where you're supposed to go, do it how you're doing it. But look, God loves his people and he causes them to be free. He's freed us from the bondage of our slavery. But even in our freedom, there are biblical principles that must be submitted to. And we see this in here. God organizes these tribes around his presence. He desires to be in the centers of their lives. So, so what happens to us sometimes is we don't, we don't want to be organized by God. And then we, we, we live selfishly and we end up causing ourselves so much trouble. So we don't want God to be the center of our life. We want to be the center of our life. We want to dominate the people around us. We don't want to submit to him. And so there's just problems that come. And God knows that that when we focus on him, we find contentment. I just would love to see the scene and how long it took them to get in that organization. They did it for 40 years. Do you know that? For 40 years, they assembled like this. And they moved as one. Well, I know when we are true worshipers of God, we really find joy in His design in our life. When you're a worshiper of God in your marriage, you really find pleasure. You really find pleasure of God's design for marriage. When your family is structured as God so desired it, you find pleasure in family. When we design our church around biblical standards that God has set, we find pleasure in it. We find joy. People are drawn to a church that organizes itself, lines itself up under 
the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ with biblically called and qualified men leading roles given to the congregation and people serving in their gifts. It's great, joyful place to be a part of and you want to bring, and you want to bring your friends and you want to be here. Now, as I just close this first point out, it's possible that the nation of Israel identified themselves with some of these banners. Maybe the lion and the man and the calf and the eagle really became symbols. Um, some of you identify yourself with eagles if you're from Philadelphia, lions if you're from Detroit. I mean, uh, and if this is true, we find a remarkable resemblance around the throne of God. I want to show you just something that's very curious. Go to chapter 7 of Revelation, and then I'll move on quickly to chapter 3, maybe. Someone said, Scott, how do you get so much out of these chapters? And I said, well, just try studying it and trying to understand it. <laughs> uh, it just gets deeper and deeper, and you don't seem to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. Chapter 7, we see God drawing to himself the 144,000, and it's no doubt that this is the tribe of Israel. You can't help but get around this. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now look at this. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. The tribe of Gad, 12,000. The tribe of Asher, 12,000. The tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. The tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. The tribe of Simeon, 12,000. The tribe of Levi, 12,000. The tribe of Issachar, 12,000. The tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. The tribe of Joseph, 12,000. The tribe of Benjamin, which isn't lost, 12,000. They were sealed. And you know how God wants to be in the center of all this? Look at what happens here. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and the people and tongues standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches which are in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne to the Lambs. I believe this is a collection of his redeemed from all the time that was around the throne saying, Amen, blessing on glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Notice in 11, all these angels were around this throne, these elders. Later we see that these elders are wearing white with crowns on their heads. It's got to reflect the church. It just, in so many ways we see that. And these four living creatures, we find these guys in Ezekiel 1 and so forth. And they're all falling down on their face before the throne and worshiping God who is in the center of all of his redeemed. So if you don't like God's organization, <laughs> you're in trouble. He's still going to organize us. He's going to put us around him, and we're going to be with the redeemed. And listen, God's organization always leads to worship, and that was the key with the nation of Israel. Well, let's look at chapter 3 and see how far we can get here as you turn your way back there. Chapter 3, we begin with the organization of the priests and the Levites. Number 2 is our thought here, the organization of the priests and the Levites. Look at the first four verses. Now these are the records of the generation of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These then are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the appointed priest whom he ordained to serve as priest. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered a strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. And they had no children. So Eliezer and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of their father Aaron. Now I think it's important to realize here that Moses never appoints any of his own sons to any position in the leadership of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Nor do we see any privileges given to his children. He doesn't give his children a step up in some way. In fact, when we look at his death, nothing's even led, left that we know of to his children. And I think this marks that the priesthood of Israel were only from one small family within the Levite tribe, the priests themselves, right? And it's from Aaron's group here. And so to be a priest and to be a Levite were not the same thing. This is what the Bible's trying to teach us here. 
Only those who were the descendant of Aaron could fulfill this role of priests, the ones that would administer the sacrifices and come into the presence of the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, and offer blood and redemption and temporary reconciliation with the nation of Israel. And these priests were, they were centered, you notice in the, in the chart that's up there, they're centered closest to the presence of God. Moses and Aaron and his sons, their tent, when you remember that, was on the east side where the gate was, where the door was to go into the courtyard and then into the holy place. They're centered most closely there. And so clearly God um, wanted them as a reference. But it's interesting, these first couple of verses, you note the death of Nadab and Abihu. Uh, Both Leviticus and Numbers mention it at least five times their death. (laughs) And I think God doesn't want them to forget what they were doing. They were offering strange fire, things that were not of God. And God always reacts to those things. I think that happens today too often. Some of these supposed ministers of God are, they fall with lust and greed and selfish desires. They'll preach a standard to their people and not live it themselves. And so we see this. This is a pattern of man, right? He forgets who he's worshiping and turns to himself. But notice at the end of verse 4, Eliezer and Ithamar continue to serve as priests before the Lord for the lifetime of their father Aaron. And doubtlessly they were placed by their sons and so forth. So there is this group that are the priests and the rest of them are Levites. And they have different roles. Look at point number 3. The vital role of the Levitical tribe of, uh, of Israel. Look at verses 5 through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may serve him. And they shall serve, and they shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of the meetings to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall also keep all the furnishing and the tent of meetings, along with the duties of some of the, uh, of the sons of Israel to the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron. And to his sons, and they are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood. But the layman should come near. But if a layman should come near, he should be put to death. Now here we find that the the Levites in their relationship to Aaron, they're given to him. And there's reasons for that. These Levites were to serve the needs of Aaron and the priest. And not all served in the same way. Can you imagine um, the amount of firewood that had to be gathered? And and we know later they take in slaves and some of them do that. But so many things uh, that would have had to be done. So much cleaning had to be done. And and prep for sacrifice of thousands of lambs and uh, that would have to go forth. And so, so God gives this Levite tribe to Aaron and his son so they can administer the sacrificial system to the congregation. Notice that some of these, it says, attend it to the needs of the whole congregation. Others attend it to the furnishings in the tabernacle and all the work that would come with that. These were constant needs, and the Levites met these needs, and they served Aaron and the sons so they could rightly bring the people into the presence of God. But that isn't all they did. Um, When we go all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 24, don't go there, but let me just tell you, verse 8 tells us that Moses in his very, some of the final sermons that he's given before he dies and they go into the promised land eventually, he he tells them to be diligently to observe the law, do all according to the priesthood who teach you. So not only did they do all the furnishings and haul all that stuff, take it down, set it up, the Levite tribe was instructing the nation of Israel of how to approach God. Further, you can go into 1 Chronicles chapter 6, and there it tells us that the Levites that were coming from Gershon and Korhath, we'll see this in Merahai, they were musicians. And so this group that's around the tabernacle not only is doing all these other works, but amongst them are choirs and and, and people with horns. and, And so they're a musical group bringing worship to God in so many ways. And so no matter how the Levites served, it's clear as you look in verse 6 that God wanted them near him. He wants this Levitical tribe near him, and there's reasons for that. And and this indicates that there's this presenting of sacrifices to the Lord, right? There's a way to come to him. 
It marks that this Levitical tribe is not just another tribe. This is a priesthood of people who serve God, serve Aaron and his sons. And again, we see this design that God has organized the nation of how to serve God. Some of the language of some of the Hebrew words in here, we get the idea that they guarded and kept, watched over. And I think you, as you look at this and even at that um, last slide we had up there, uh, you can realize that the Levitical tribe was really on permanent guard of the tabernacle. In fact, look at verse 10, tells us that they were essentially armed, ready to kill unauthorized persons, uh, persons approaching the tabernacle. Look at that in verse 10. So they protect it from both friend and foe, right? So if you're the tribe of Benjamin and you want to walk into the, the tabernacle, you're going to get nailed. That was their goal. Now, here's something that's key. The sons of Aaron who did the visible priestly work are often associated with the tribe of Levi. But it was the service of the Levites that made the work of the priest possible, right? And I like this. And let me put some application to this. I don't do what I do if there aren't plenty of people helping me do what I do. And it starts with my own wife. And it works its way to um, pastoral staffs, how we, how we intertwine our lines, how we work with counselors, how, how we work with the front office, how we work with members of our church, how, how we all work together, organized by God, to accomplish the work of God to bring him glory as from the church of Riverbend. It is, it, it's so clear to me. I look at this and I go, wow, this is just foreshadowing how God always organizes his people. And so I enjoy thinking about these things. And you think about under the new covenant, God has designed and organized this beautiful role of leadership, these under-shepherds that, that, that put themselves under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, right? And they're in these appointed offices. They're called and qualified, equipped men, but they work for the chief shepherd. They carry out the, the goals of the, of the chief shepherd. They're, 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 they're galley rowers. They've got their hands gripped on the oars, and they're pulling at the stroke of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. That's what we do. We see such organization, and that's not all. We see deacons who are ministries of mercy, ministers of mercy. We can't do what we do without them. We can't have ministry without people who care for the youngest souls. We, we can't have ministry without those who care for those who can't be here because they're sick or dying. They need care. There's so many aspects, and when you look at the priesthood, it's amazing because they're doing so many things that really don't get the highlight show, right? But the priest of Aaron and his sons don't get anything accomplished without them. And I think what's really remarkable, and this is where we transition into a new covenant, is there we see priests serving in the Levitical tribe, but under the new covenant, we're all believer priests. That's what the Bible says. There's no need for a priesthood within Catholicism or any other group. You're the priest. God has saved you. He, he's made you fit. He's qualified you, made you fit, Colossians 1, to walk into the presence of the Father at any moment and offer a sacrifice of praise. Peter said it this way, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Not only just a priesthood, you, you, you're part of the kingly priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so there's this equality and standing now. And so as I thought about that, I thought about so many things. I can get, go down rabbit trails all the time, but I'm thinking about wood, and I'm thinking about cleaning. I mean, five gallons of blood will come off, come off of a, a heifer that is slain. I mean... What do they do with all? Oh, there's so many roles that had to be played. And yet it all was to bring God glory who was in the center of this nation. And I can't, couldn't help but just stop. And I just said, Lord, I praise you for Riverbend Church, for so many who take up the mantle and serve the Lord as a believer priest. 
They know they can walk in your presence, whether they're washing somebody's feet, they're changing a diaper, they're teaching a passage, they're discipling somebody, they're counseling somebody, they're studying, they're caring for the hurting, they're caring for the disabled. Whatever it may be, we work together to bring him glory. And, and when you look at these slides, you go, that's a shadow of things to come of God, what God has for us. Christ in the center of all we do at Riverbend. That's why we use the term Christ-centered around here so much. Ooh, I gotta go. Four. The, Levitical, uh, the Levites were a special possession belonging to God. Look at verses 11 through uh, 13. And his army even numbered the men of four... Uh, whoa, I'm in the wrong chapter again. Three. And again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn. And this is interesting. The, fir the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. For all the firstborn are mine on the day that I uh, struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I sanctif sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from man to beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Well, this, of course, takes place in Exodus chapter 13. And there, God laid a special claim to the firstborn of Israel, both man and beast, as he brought them out of slavery, as he protected them with the blood on the doorpost. He said, at that time, all firstborn, man and beast, belong to me. And it's just a clear principle that God has the right to the first and to the best. This is what he has the right to do. Notice it says this, though. Look at this. It says, instead of every firstborn. So there's a change coming that God is doing here. And I think there's a clear example of substitution. We see substitutionary death with, with Abraham and Isaac, Genesis chapter 22, verse 13. We see that there. This, so there's a substitution here. Instead of taking the firstborn humans, he's going to take the Levitical tribe. So God says that the Levites will be his because all the firstborn are mine. So the Levite, the son of Jacob, he was not the firstborn among his brethren. We know that, right? Yet God chooses the Levite as his own. He regards them as a replacement of the firstborn of the whole nation. Now, that doesn't mean someone couldn't offer their firstborn. We see Hannah, who was, I believe, from the Ephraim tribe. Hannah offers Samuel, her firstborn, back to the Lord. doesn't mean they couldn't do that. But here, he now takes this firstborn now replaced by the Levite tribe to be given to him. So every Levite was to go to the service of God, that every one of them, and that's what he's teaching here. Now, number five, the fifth point, goes on to help us a little more with this, the numbering of the tribe of Levi and their duties. Um, look at 14 through 20 without me reading, kind of peruse down through this because we gotta, we got to go and there's some repetition in here as well. Now, the Levites were not counted, right? This is what he's saying here. They're not counted because they're not like the tribe's purpose for war. So God did not want them numbered like the nation was numbered for soldiers, right? So it's clear in the scriptures that God doesn't want us to count. He tells us sometimes not to count things, don't count them. David found that out the hard way, right? Um, but there's a clear difference in, in who counts and when to count. So as you look at this little passage, 14 through 20, we remember that the soldiers were counted at the age of 20 and older. But here now, God says, I want the firstborn. So all the Levites were counted from a month old and above. And, and at that time, they're dedicated as servants for a lifetime. Now, that's, that's interesting, isn't it? A very, very different than the men going to war. So right off the bat, this one-month-old male child would be dedicated, if it was from the tribe of Levite, to the service of God the rest of its life. Now, um, can you go back to that colored slide there, Troy? I want you to notice that, again, that Moses' family, notice, is camped on the east side of the tabernacle. And they really come from three family groups that make up this unit. And I'll, and I'll explain this here in verses 21 through uh, 26. There's Gershom, there's Koath, and there's Merari. Now, Gershon, you see him in verses 21 through 26, and you notice that uh, he's on the west side. So he's bordering the west side of the, uh, the tabernacle, and he has Ephraim uh, right next to him. These Gershonites, they camped on the west side of the tabernacle. 
Um, and they had duties. And you'll notice in verses 21 through 26, their duties were to take care of all the skins that covered the tabernacle, all that outing fences that were all covered with skins. They had, they had responsibilities for all that. These verses describe that. So they had to take them down. They had to set them up. They had to transport them. Um, they, I mean, th- there's a lot of work to this. And, and notice the number of them, these males that were one month and older, were 7,500 of them. Verses 27 through 32, you, get, you come to Korath. And the Korathites, they numbered um, 8,600 um, there are some that think there's a scribal error. I'll explain this in a minute and thinks it was 83. I, I, I don't agree with that, but I'll explain that in a minute. They're on the south side, right? We, and, and so we've seen the south side group. That's Reuben and, um, Reuben and um, Simeon and Gad are there on the south side. Uh, but, but, the, but here the Korahs are up against the tabernacle. And, and, and we know who these guys are. We're going to see in number 16. This is where Korah comes out of the Korathites. He rebels against Moses, he rebels against his authority, and he desires his position. Now, there's probably some reasons for that. Notice it says in these verses, the family of the Amramites. Uh, Am- Am- this is the family, this is the line where Moses, Aaron, Miriam, they all come out of this line. But God separates Moses and Aaron and makes them one group, and out of the other group he makes these Korahs. And that might have been where the rebellion came from. They, they might have said, look, these guys are from our family. Why do they get all the headship? Why do they have all the authority? Why are they on the east side? Why do they get to communicate with God in the tent of meetings? Why don't we? And there might have been some great jealousy and rebellion that came out of that. But notice in the text it says the chorus duties were to take care of the furniture. So this means God gave them a very important job. They handled the Ark of the Covenant. So they transported that. They handled the showbread table. They handled the lampstand, the altars, all the tools and furnishing, everything that went along, uh, went along with that. So they're responsible for this transporting uh, them, the placement of them once they got established again. All of this had to happen. All this organization took place, and Korath uh, took care of that. But notice in verse 32, there's this real important note here. I want to I mark this in verse 32. Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, was the chief of the leaders of the Levite and had oversight on those who performed the duties of the sanctuary. So Aaron's son, Eliezer, he's one of the replacements because uh, Nadab and uh, Elihu got killed, right? God killed them. So he replaced them and he becomes the chief leader. So everything goes through this guy. Now, Again, as I thought about this, we'll see this more in, in chapter 16, that might have spurned a lot of things too, right? Korath says, look, we're from the same family group, and Aaron and Moses, they get all the authority, and now Aaron's son, we have to give an account to him for how we're handling the furniture. And you can see where pride may have come in there, and maybe another reason, but here um, Eliezer's given authority over all that. Now, Merari is the next group, 33-37. Notice this group is 6,200 males above one month. They camp on the north side. They're between the tribe of Dan and the tabernacle itself. You can see that. And they are responsible for the structure aspect of the tabernacle, all the pillars, the boards, all the related parts. So they had to disassemble all that, but they had to wait for the skins to come off. You know, so there's all timing, there's all order, and there's all organization to these things. Then transport it, reassemble it, get it ready for the other tribes to put the skins back on it, and they handled all the frame, the structure, and everything for his lifetime. What an amazing job. Now, drop into verses 38 through 39, and we find Moses and Aaron and his sons here. i got to quickly, I'm going as fast as I can here. Now, those who were to camp before the tabernacle eastward, before the tent of meetings towards the sunrise, now we're back to the leaders, right? Are Moses and Aaron and his sons, not Korath. They were jealous of this. Performing the duties of the sanctuary for the obligation of the sons of Israel, but the layman coming near was to be put to death. All the numbered men of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the command of the Lord, by their families, every male from a month old and upward were 22,000. So here we have Moses and Aaron, their sons. They're camped on the east side. They're between Judah and the, the tabernacle. They're in the most honored location. They're guarding the entrance to the tabernacle. 
They're to kill anybody who tries to come through that who's unauthorized. They're facing the sun. So as Judah woke up and Moses and Aaron just inside of them, between them and the tabernacle, the, the, sun, the sun would shine upon them. And it would shine upon that entrance of the most holy place, really symbolizing the life-giving nature and the presence of God, wasn't it? Now, Moses and Aaron and their sons were charged with performing the duties of the sanctuary. So in order to meet all of this, they're, they're given priority here. And they have priority to God's dwelling. They, remember, they're, they're handling the sacrificial system. How, how are you going to be right with God if you've sinned? How, do, how are you going to be res, uh, reconciled, at least temporarily, until Christ comes? Well, Aaron is handling this and his sons. And so they're right there at the door. They have priority there. In fact, they are the mediator between God and man, in a sense, toward the, till the greater high priest comes, the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Now, just like the rest of the tribes were organized, so the Levite tribes. Look, they're broken down. They're around. You can see that in that slide. They're, they're around their tabernacle. They're all organized. They have all their duties. They know what they're to be doing to bring worship to God and to minister to the people. And their number comes to 2,200. But you go, wait a minute, some of you are doing the math out there, you got your iPhone out, you hit the little calculator, and you go, and this doesn't add up. Well, this is where so many writers um, I read this week said, oh, this, this is just a scribal error. Uh, not so fast. Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure it is. Verses 40 through 51 are very interesting. I don't have quite time to read them because I'm totally out of time. Um, but I want you to think about this. In chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, God told Moses that he wanted the Levites as a substitute for the firstborn males of Israel. And these numbers would have reflected. And every time you read these numbers, they seem to reflect back to what came out of Egypt. Over and over we see that. It, the numbers reflect what was brought out of Egypt. And so God wanted the firstborn lambs to be sacrificed to the Lord, but he didn't, want to, he didn't want firstborn humans sacrificed. So he instead substitutes the Levites for the firstborn in exchange. Now we come up with this extra group here. And I read several people on this that really uh, helped me kind of understand this. And I think what's happening here is after they came out of captivity, there were some children born, right? Maybe a... <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a lot of children born or, or conceived after Super Bowls and all kinds of things. Uh, who knows what was behind all this? But what many writers that I would really align with began to say that there was another 273 male children that were not part of that count of Levites that came out of Israel. These were in addition, so they were born within the last 13 months. And so these numbers start to get rounded off to 22 because these additional ones, if you add it up, would become to 2,200 where they'd round that off. They're probably most likely these babies that are less than 13 months old that God wanted them brought into the Levitical tribe, but they were not counted with the original group that came out. And so he has a way. And if you study this towards the end, you'll see that God put a price of five shekels on each one of them to purchase them and bring them into his fold as ones who were counted as the firstborn given to him, given to, the, to fulfill the duty of the priest. And so I think that's where that goes. But let me end with just a, a real quick um, thought of application. All of Israel belonged to the Lord, right? He said that. They all belonged to me. But there was a physical tribe of Levi that was the firstborn in, in that place of that. And so when we think about this, everyone, everything we have belongs to the Lord. All of us. And you say, I've had so many people through the years say, well, you pastors, you have a special blessing on you. And, you know, God always blesses everything you do. And, and that's not true. We suffer. It's just interesting to sit in our elder meetings as we pray for one another and the sufferings that we're going through personally and in our families. But, but as now in the new covenant, we're all his priest. And we all have this responsibility to give back a portion to him. And, and that's what he wants. Give these priests back to me. Don't get the whole nation's not for this service. Give them back. And so as I thought about that, I thought, well, now we are, all of us, the believer priest. He is now taking us for his firstborn. He's made us 
children. In fact, he's made us joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we are a gift back to him. And we serve and fulfill that duty of that role as a believer priest in the presence of God. Do you see yourself that? Do you see yourself as a believer priest who fulfills your role in the very presence of God to bring him glory in worship? And you're giving your life back to him. Whether you're 13 months old or 130. We give our lives back to him. And so this is what's so confusing why institutions have priests and things like that when the Bible makes it clear after the new covenant is installed through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are all his priests. And our job is to fulfill the duties I told somebody recently, I said, look, your gifts are different than mine. And if I don't fulfill what God's called me to do, I'm wrong. And if you don't fulfill what God's called you to do, you're wrong. We're the priesthood of Christ. And you say, well, I don't want to cut wood. (laughs) Maybe that's what God's called you to do. Maybe God's called you to to take care of the little up-and-coming priest (laughs) down the hall. Maybe he's called you to sing and worship or counsel or love on the the unlovable. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, he has given us a job to do it. And and I love this because it got me thinking so much about 1 Corinthians 12, which I'm starting on Sunday, this diversity that the church has given to bring glory to God. So brothers and sisters, welcome to the priesthood. If you're cutting wood, go do it for the glory of God. If you're bleeding out sacrifices, do it well for God. Do it his way. Whatever you're doing, do it God's way. And he'll bless you and he'll bless our church. Father in heaven, we thank you for these chapters. They're at first sight when you begin to look at these. There are lots of numbers and tribes and banners and standards and hauling a lot of things around in the wilderness. And yet the more we examine it, we see a God who is so organized He is a God that has a plan. You are a God that has a plan and you're going to fulfill it. And you take a bunch of slaves that that only know how to take an order and really probably forgot how to think on their own and you, you empower them to be a group of people organized with you in the center of it. And Lord, we can't but help look at the church what you've done. You've taken a bunch of slaves. We were slaves to our sin. We were dying. We were controlled by the one who works in the son's obedience. And you've taken us and you've robbed us from his family and given us a family. You've adopted it into your family. You wiped out our past. You've made us your children. You've given us away jobs, places, things to do for your glory, Lord. God, help us line up where you want us to serve you. Lord, whatever that is, instill it in our hearts. Cause us to to serve with the vigor of the Lord, to preach with zeal, to, to, to give with everything we have. Lord, help us serve you. Lord, what a great illustration we've seen tonight. Massive nation with God in the center. Lord, we're not a massive church. We're actually a small church with a lot of people. We want you right in the center. Be in the center of our music. Be in the center of our preaching. Be in the center of our fellowship. Be in the center of our counsel. Be in the center of our serving. Be in the center of our children. Be in the center of everything we do, Lord. We know that will bring you honor and glory. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.